Hello and welcome to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast. I'm Maura Gamble. Join me each week in conversation with leading permaculture-related and ecological educators, thinkers, activists, authors, designers and practitioners to explore the kind of thinking and action we need to navigate a positive and regenerative way forward, to myceliate possibilities and share ideas of what a thriving one-planet way of life could look like. My guests offer voices of clarity and common sense. I'm so delighted to be sharing this episode with you. I'm speaking with my dear friend and collaborator, the amazing Christy Wilson. Christy is a clinical psychotherapist, climate activist, and facilitator working with people at the front line of the climate emergency. She wrote the Region 101 program for Global XR and has recently co-authored and published an article on climate-aware counselling. She develops and facilitates professional development workshops to explore the eco-psychosocial experience of engaging with climate change and climate justice. She hosts events with Psychology for a Safe Climate, organizers for Extinction Rebellion Global Support, and serves on the boards of the Anthropocene Transition Network and the Green Law Network. Together, Christy and I created a permaculture series of conversations with Global XR that continue to ripple out. In this conversation, we touch deeply on how it feels to be alive today, knowing what's going on around us and finding the courage to continue to show up and simultaneously taking care of ourselves. Let me begin first though by acknowledging that I'm recording this episode from my hand-built solar-powered studio here on beautiful Gubby Gubby country and I'm surrounded here by my permaculture design gardens in a permaculture eco-village. The Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast is a project of the Permaculture Education Institute. We teach permaculture design, permaculture teachers and permaculture livelihood skills online to people on six continents who in turn localize and enrich it and find appropriate ways to apply the planet care ethics of earth care, people care and fair share wherever they are. Before we jump in, I'd love to invite you to subscribe to Sense Making the Changing World podcast on your favorite app and please do leave us a five-star review and a lovely comment because it really does help the bots find this little show. All right, well, let's turn now to the conversation with Christy Wilson. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Christy. It's such a delight that we've actually finally found this moment to sit down together and, and have a chat. It's It's been a long time coming. That's <laughs> more I care. <laughs> There's so many things that I'd, I'd love to talk with you about the work that you're doing, the intersection of that with permaculture, your work over the years as an eco-activist, but we could begin with just what opened the doors for you in your mind to be so present in this space of regenerative culture and, and eco-activism. What, what, what cracked open that world for you? I guess this, this is part of like something that I have been working on with people in practice and, and with groups, you know, around regenerative futures, but also like the impacts from climate, ecological and biodiversity loss. And it, and it is part of my own process. And, you know, like I think storytelling our um, ecological stories that form our identity is a really big part of that. It's a really big part of understanding how intricately connected we are to everything and therefore, you know, if the planet's disrupted, so it will we be. And so, like, early on, um, I was part of the 
to, to start with a little story, you know, I was part of the mass migration from the western suburbs in Sydney um, to the Central Coast in the 70s. We moved to a little sort of bush shack across the road from the beach. And so that was very like early years, like th- three, four years old. And sort of we ran around in bare feet and trod on bindies. And what had- was that mass migration? What? Yeah, it was just like um, whole lots of people moved from um, Western Sydney up to the Central Coast earlier. And I think that was earlier on um, during the war and depression time, there was a massive big tent city up at Tukli. So a lot of my parents' parents either were part of that tent city and knew about the area. It was abundant, full of fish, and, that, you know, there was a lot of food grown up here during the wartime, citrus farms and et cetera. So people, even though we're living in a tent city and it was during depression, actually had access to fresh produce and were sharing. And I think that stayed in the, that lifestyle near the ocean and um, the lake stayed in the minds of, of the people that lived there and then their children coming up on holidays and, and so became part of a really a big culture move from, from Western Sydney at one point, you know, in the early 70s, late 60s. What about that, though, that understanding where you were in this place of, you know, the need to care for it? Because you can grow up in a place, a beautiful place, but not necessarily have a sense of it or a sense of it changing. What was the, what changed that awoke you to feeling like the need to care so much more deeply to protect it and to stand up and speak up and to actually become an activist? Yeah. I guess I naturally was drawn to, um, caring for animals like I everything that was injured I would bring home and my parents would be like oh um and because living across the road from the ocean we literally it was a place called Blue Lagoon and it looked like Blue Lagoon so we had fresh water coming down from the mountain that we could drink whale migration which is this time of year now um you know we'd swim around and there'd be dolphins and we'd be fishing and so much abundant wildlife and I guess because we were so young with my brother and sister we didn't feel separate like we kind of grew and then we went to a bush school and our bush school um, was like a demountable school that was cleared rough and it was freezing in the winter and hot in the summer and um, I was very very lucky to have had an Aboriginal teacher early on and so we got to do bark um, paintings and encouraged into sort of like a paper bark swamp forest that surrounded the school and we did grow with that we were kind of a motley crew ride motorbikes and you know (laughs) roller skates down hills and um it was just such a wild beautiful way of living and I definitely felt like I I grew with that as we got older um because it was like to get into any shopping center it was like uh, nearly an hour trip on a bumpy old red bus on a dirt road. And so when we heard this shopping centre was coming called Bay Village, we were all quite excited until the bulldozers arrived and literally wiped out our bushland around our school within a week. So it went from this incredible swampy paper bark place that we'd grown with and we knew who lived in there with us and we, there was always a pair of or many eyes on us and we knew which places to tread and not. Um, and going to seeing that place of just like desecrated dirt with rubbish left and some bulldozers and then they gated it. Um, I, we climbed over it and I remember watching the reactions from everybody and, you know, someone rocking back and forward just in this, wanting to just scream with with grief and others really angry. And for me, I just sort of stood there and I, I really felt like I'd been 
punched in the stomach. I was so sick. And then I started to think, no, if we leave this, it knows what to do. Like there was this, and that's, I think that was the first moment that I really embodied the potential of regeneration. Like I knew the place wouldn't come back exactly looking the same, but it would, it would be the same, like it would come back. And that's, from that time on, I think that formed a very deep, deep um, somatic embodied understanding of the power of regeneration. And it did form my um, career moving, you know, like I trained as a naturopath and homeopath before going into psychotherapy and um, gestalt psychotherapy and really looking at that mind-body-earth connection in, in the meaning of healing um, as a career moving forward. But also, I guess, having our um, Aboriginal teacher and, again, in high school, who I'm still in relationship here, and then my brother marrying into a sort of a proud Yongle family and having Aboriginal children and being involved in some Indigenous rights activism Oh, I just want to take a breath, you know, thinking about all of all of that, you know, like to to do that kind of activism. There was so much violence involved, you know, and from the police, so much injustice. And then looking at how people were living in such harmony um, in their homes and in with such deep deep knowledge of of their totems and understanding of um, medicine. There was such a disparity between, you know, a system that had been that I was living in as a white identified child, and then the this system that was so full of a, um, potential to share this this knowledge and and willing to and being so oppressed and and there was there's something always stayed with me around the oppression of something so anything really um, with so much potential and to evolve you know like human beings and and the land and all of us together I I guess there's a lot more to say there but um Mm. stay stay with that so your your work from you were talking about that you began as a naturopath and that that deep connection of place and medicine and community you do a lot of work now helping people with eco grief I wonder whether you could just reflect on what you see as the state of eco-grief now. I think when, as you were speaking about that first experience, I feel like there's something, there's those kind of moments in in many of us, whether it be at a large-scale loss of a, <clears throat> an area like that or a, a little, you know, a, a special tree that gets chopped down in next-door neighbours if you're in a suburban backyard or um, I remember the, the I my area where I grew up was one of the, like, uh, it was on the outskirts of Melbourne. And when I first moved there, there was there was a few houses up and down the streets, but the kids kind of ran wild a bit like you. So we knew where all the secret spots were and there was just the, the forest around us, the creek down the bottom. We were racing through the streets free until, you know, the parents called us in at night time. Sure. And gradually that filled in and it just became busier and busier. The next generation of children to grow up in that street became caged. Yeah. They weren't allowed out in the street. The loss of the forest, the loss of the rivers, the loss of the sense of connection with place. To me, it feels like it's there in all of us somewhere, whether we recognise it or not. And I wonder whether you could speak to that a bit. Absolutely. Like, I mean, with the Regen 101 program that, you know, that, that I sort of developed for Extinction Rebellion, and it was on Earth emotions and it was, you know, 
um, after a long discussion I had with Glenn Albrecht um, just before the book came out. And I and I wondered how we could unpack earth emotions, um, ecological grief, eco-anxiety, you know, like terror, trauma, fury. And I remembered all those those emotions that came up when our bush was um, cleared. From a personal level, I've, I've always sort of like tried to not work with people with something that I haven't actually embedded deeply into my own life. And coming from that sort of naturopathic ba- background, we were sort of the first or the last group of naturopaths to even have the training before it went into universities in Australia. And you know, like before that it was osteopathy and homeopathy and, and you know, a lot of the, the body work and very somatically based and the herbal medicine, the nutrition, like, and we energetic medicine and putting all that together and then it went in a little bit like we were seeing in the healing justice movement, it went into the universities, even training as a naturopath changed, you know, like a change out of that kind of real permaculture deep roots and um, and and people with with lineages of knowledge of teaching the next generation into like university-based training as well I saw that as a as a really big you know part of a colonization of, of, of something that should be available to all of us and as far as the grief goes I lost a family member you know in my early 20s a, a very close family member and the grief that I went into um actually dropped me so deeply into ecological grief because nature or the natural world had been my family as well. And so going through that kind of loss and in that grief, I started, I guess, to really um, more than ever wake up to how my natural world family members me um, were suffering at the hand of people that was when I first awakened to like the grief that had been there for me already around um, what was happening on a, on a planetary scale really and I think that's happened to a lot of people you know they've actually been through some kind of a loss whether it's been in a relationship or a natural landscape that they love or um, a loss of a loved one a pet like and, and that's kind of a trigger for people you know like because people lean into nature don't they They get nature to embrace them when they're when they're feeling at these feeling grief or feeling other um big emotions and need that extra support um it's a it's a place that we often go to for our healing uh, anyway and so i think this is kind of something that's happened and i noticed um on a global scale, and I noticed that during the Regen 101 when we asked about um, solastalgia, you know, like when you're feeling like the place where you grew up is moving away from you, a known place is looked differently, like the weather patterns moving south or having having a, um, even if you grew up, you know, like it doesn't matter if you grew up in wild nature or in an urban landscape or a desert, it's just having something that's familiar to you, Um I guess it was familiar as a family member, like a tree, for example, on on a on a street, and having that cut down, and that not only changing changing the landscape, but it's it's a part of your own um, ecological story that's being so deeply impacted. So, the one of the ways that that I've been working with this with people that 
is getting some great success or at least relief for people and to help move um, forward into some kind of, I don't want to say the word resilience, I just want to say um, meaning-making maybe is a better is a better word about what's happening and and then finding sort of like their place um, in what they would like to do about it is to unpack your own ecological stories, to think about the place places for some people where they grew up because some people grew up in multiple places, you know, they moved around all over the globe, others, you know, stayed in one place their entire life. But there's always these moments of an ecological story and if you put all those stories together, it sort of forms your ecological identity. And then for you and I, we know that after studying, um, you know, with Nora Bateson and, and doing the warm data work, we know that there's nested systems. We know that things are so interconnected. And so our stories merge with the next system. So it might be our first, our inner story, our inner world, and then the place where we grew and then the place where we grew, how that's connected maybe to other places and eventually goes out planetary and global and if we're quite um, sensitive to our stories or if we spend time in group um, unpacking these stories, storytelling, you know, yarning like um, Australian First People would call it or if we um, draw it, dance it, art it some form, garden it, you know, we don't have to go into just um, journaling or talking about it. There's other ways to somatically express this and it can be really cathartic and um make room it's like processing something through your body to to bring it of service to your uh soul journey or to something that you're here to do that even if you're sitting in the middle of a storm it's quite centering to know that that's that's what you're here for and that's what your soul is calling you to do and it's born out of out of grief sometimes or you know and grief comfortably sits under anger and comfortably sits under so many other emotions especially at this time in the world the question that i wanted to ask you around this is how is it that you've found the best way to support people who are feeling so deeply about this and possibly feeling enormous amounts of even futility about the future what have you seen are ways to support people who are in that in that state underneath all of that as a foundation was I needed to find a way to support myself um, to do that work. And so we know that, you know, so many things happened in 218. It was a really, really big year. And late 217, I think I went out wanting to move out of my own grief. I went to a, a lecture by the late Professor Will Stephan out, out at the Western Sydney University and I met Dr. Kim Liu and Sally Gillespie and the Anthropocene Transition Network and went into a, a dialogue group with you know, some of the members from the Anthropocene transition with Sally and um, still still a member of that. And it was such a support to be in a group and we were just talking about what the Anthropocene meant and sort of what all of the, all, all of this meant. And so at that time it was it was just prior to Extinction Rebellion forming in Australia. And early on I went out to the um Narara Eco Village where Extinction Rebellion had, you know, like they were having their second sort of meeting and I went out and I thought, oh, this is it. I mean, you know, like I, I just felt like I had to take action. I had to be part of something that was just pushing an emergent edge because I just felt, you know, like not only did that feel cathartic but I just felt like, yeah, this is just calling to me. And then when we set up the Regenerative Culture Working Group in Sydney and this is prior to the um first rebellion that was in Sydney and 
prior to the bushfires. And, you know, there was a sort of a feeling prior to the bushfires. There was just this this feeling coming in. I was trying to understand what regenerative, at the time, regenerative culture, you know, later on we renamed it, you know, regenerative cultures and um, trying to think what does that actually mean? Like what does it mean? Like I, I don't know how to define this. And so I started writing a little sort of a workshop and Glenn Albrecht came down and supported and because we started with Earth Emotions and then we, you know, we looked at sort of intersectionality, communities of care and um, the first one was very teaching and it was a big lesson learned because we we did take this workshop um, then to the Blue Mountains and the Central Coast and Hobart and Launceston and Melbourne and Brisbane and the ACT. Like we really took it to many different contexts and um uh, what we found was the meaning of regenerative cultures. We kept asking, what does it mean? Like we'd sort of sort of ask and we realised that what we were doing was creating a cultural container for people to tell us what regenerative cultures meant for them. And then we started hearing a pattern um, emerging. And so the workshop um, during the bushfires, you know, we were writing this little PDF booklet to go with the workshop and we nearly stop doing it because you know everyone was being evacuated and the grief was so full on um from so much loss you know here on the central coast we, we were covered in smoke like many other places we were not on fire but bracing for it and all the little bats the pollinators were dropping out of the sky and you know it was it was so heartbreaking um you know for everybody around the country and the world to hear the loss and for the people directly impacted, you know, like the grief was so full on. We decided no matter what, we're going to finish this booklet because we believe now that regenerative cultures and regenerative futures is the most important thing we could be doing on the planet right now. One of the young activists in Hong Kong, I was listening to her, um, you know, she was one of the main organisers. She said she had a moment and she was standing there and she thought, you know, like we're up against this and there's all this oppression and violence. What would I do if we all suddenly put everything down? What would be the next step? And she couldn't answer it. You know, she she just, you know, this was on a, on a webinar she was on and that was her starting to think about like the meaning of regenerative futures. How are we going to be next after we, you know, like really do this very important nonviolent direct action and that really stayed with me that thought as as well as like what what are we what are we creating how are we evolving you know the, the consciousness of of everything so we don't suddenly do all this action and get the political change and then what you know we go back into battle with each other because we haven't um, done the inner work you know the mindset work the attending the, the obligation work to the places and spaces where we live into each other um yeah so moving back into that workshop because uh we had the the fires so that changed the the I guess the vulnerability and the delicacy and and the the deep sharing of grief that came into the workshop and during the fires we ran one in Sydney you know like we, it was it was huge like people coming in and, and for the first time understanding what communal grieving was you know like that it was it was big stuff and also at the people's assembly in Canberra um you know where everyone went shoulder to shoulder around and was calling out the action on climate while Canberra was on actually on fire and 
Um, we facilitated an animal morning, warm data lab as well, and an animal, animal morning sort of ceremony and people came with their animals and photos of animals and at the time, you know, like we knew what the ash meant um, and also in the warm data lab, you know, mid-warm data lab smoke was pouring into the room and so we sort of stopped and acknowledged what was actually being lost at the time. So based on that experience um, during COVID, we pivoted online with this workshop and then we started working really with people around um, Australia and the team that I was working with in the global support in, in Extinction Rebellion Regenerative Cultures Working Group, um, we, I was teamed up with a, a young woman from Hawaii and India and the UK. And so we kind of had this sort of um, this team and, and we transformed this two-day workshop into an online offering, which was, you know, like every at that time it was everyone was, it was the, you know, the new world of Zoom was happening. and um, But what we did find was everyone was inside, so people were really grieving so much about the world and so a lot of people came to these workshops. You know, sometimes we we were up to 90 people and we would have to shift it around into more of a webinar and um, style and, yeah, so unpacking all these emotions, people were, you know, like we had groups from Africa and we have groups from Korea and we have groups from just you name it on the world coming together and talking about what it meant and it was so amazing to hear people doing these deep listening with each other um, around what was happening in their context, what regenerative cultures meant in their context, what it meant to be in relationship with place and space in their context and doing sort of that cross-cultural, cross-pollination of learning with deep respect and deep listening and something magic happened each and every time and still does in the room um, when that happens. When you And some of the, the words that were named, like we did it very much about let's have a shared meaning of a word like terra fury um, and that, you know, was coined by Glenn Albrecht again. And this one, like within the activist space, was really, really popular. Like people were like, oh, finally. They were so angry. Um, at, at what was happening politically, so angry at what is happening environmentally with biodiversity, with um, social justice issues all happening at once. People were so angry and to be some people like that led to burnout, others like to acting like quite erratic with rage. And when people in the room and sort of talking about, hey, this is protective anger, this is like a mama bear, this is like, you feeling so protective and so just insulted by the injustice of what's happening and no wonder you're so angry and full of rage. So to have that named and then to have a place to go to go, all right, now let's talk about what we can do about it and sort of process that and transform that into non-violent direct action or or into like a, a change in their life. You know, I had a a beautiful woman, I'd love to use her as an example and I have permission, um, but we will call her Ellen, say. She um, lives in a wheelchair and is from um, an affluent area and her way of dealing with everything was to not mow her front lawn, which was a big no-no in where she lived. And she said, I'm creating a bee farm and she got the greatest delight in sitting out there being a disruptor in on that level, which was a huge thing for her and it was her contribution to being, you know, like nonviolent direct action, that this was this was hers. And others, you know, like came into the Regen 101 workshop um, 
because they were really curious around XR and didn't want to go in through the other ways. They didn't go to a heading for extinction talk. They kind of were interested in the regenerative culture aspect. But from there went straight into um, heading for extinction talk and straight into an NVDA training, nonviolent direct action training, and straight to the front line doing, you know, nonviolent direct action. And with the um, underpinnings and with the foundation of, of regenerative cultures and, and non-violence and thinking about what am I here at the front line for and how do I go through the regenerative action cycle and take care of myself and others as we do it. So um, what were those patterns that you heard people talking about when you were asking the question about what are regenerative cultures and what does it look like and where are we heading? What are we what are we calling for? Yeah, look, it was so it was so interesting. It went from people would recognise regenerative cultures as maybe re, they'd become from a regen, regen, regenerative ag, agricultural background, permaculture background. Others were coming in from doing mindfulness, mindful self-compassion kind of work or Buddhism or the inner kind of transformational work and saying, you know, like we need to work on the inner and, and with each other. Others were going, you know, like... What means to me to um, live, you know, within system, within the natural systems, and come back into natural cycles of living, and therefore living like that, and going off and sort of caring for a piece of land. For other people, it meant, I guess, respectfully stepping forward um, into the work of um, decolonization and anti-oppression, and listening. Um, to the wisdom of First Nations people and wanting to sort of more understand Indigenous cosmology. Other people were going um, for a regenerative cultures aspect, like really looking at the area of burnout and how to look after activists on the field. So there was what was centred to all of it um, when we asked about self-care was that self-care is really impossible without community care in some way. You know, like we can do these things of self-care that we don't want to talk, you know, we don't want to say it's like rubbing essential oil on you and doing yoga. Like that is a form of self-care. But how how that changes you and how you sort of bring your potential into a community is, you know, like again coming back to liminal space or nested systems. Um, we know from warm data, thinking through how you do your self-care and how that's connected to community care or family care and the first system being inside of your body, you know, taking care of that family and that system and then moving that out into family and community and wider and wider. So there was a very um, continuous theme of understanding, firstly, how they'd neglected self-care as an activist and then the type, then um, engaging in self-care brought them into much deeper community care and thinking into regenerative futures and or acting on creating regenerative futures. I want to just to circle back too to something else you were talking about, these community shared grieving spaces or shared conversational spaces where people feel they can bring up these types of feelings and work through them together. Now, you are a trained psychotherapist. If someone in the community was wanting to start up a circle like this, what what would you recommend that they do? I mean, there's that feeling of, well, it might actually, if you lift the lid on this, I might not know what to do with it. Um, yeah. How would you approach that? Absolutely. And let's firstly acknowledge lifting the lid on pent or oppressed grief from, you know, from no other reason than growing up in a primarily a Western culture where 
we're not taught to do communal grieving and you know you see it at the celebration of someone's end of life you know there's people sitting often in churches holding on for grim death um, to all of their emotions and hearing this beautiful music and looking at pictures and I've often felt like going through you know like sitting in those spaces and places for the people I love it's so cruel Um, and then when there's there's someone says something funny there's a moment of everyone's like it's a great relief you know when we can talk about the person um and so yeah we we really haven't been taught to be in community to do grieving and I so appreciate being in communities where there's wailing and where there's like because when someone you know when someone or something that you love um either passes over or or trans transform in, in a in a different shape I think a natural response is to make sounds and to do body movements and we just haven't had much exposure to that kind of community grieving so firstly yes we want to take care that that is that is true and that is real and so taking care of yourself to like step gently into what as much as or little as you want to share you know grief is grief is grief you know it's one person's grief it's not measurable you know you hear stories and you know like some people have been through the most unimaginable situations and experiences in life. So emotional methodologies are things like the Good Grief Network, 10-step process, climate cafes, the Region 101 program, talking circles, yarning circles. These are these are things where people are coming together and unpacking um, the work that reconnects, obviously, with Joanna Macy and Active Hope. These We've been doing these for the last, you know, five years in, in groups of people and you know, like some people have been doing the work for a bit longer and can go a little bit deeper. Other times people can come in and it's they're just being exposed to doing this kind of work. Um, and with good facilitation, you know, it can be held really safely so that people can, like I said, give as much or as little as they want of their grief process. It doesn't mean that going out on your own and being held by the ground, doing your own wailing or doing your own spiritual process whatever that is isn't really um helpful as well it's just that doing this community stuff as well as your individual stuff and obviously you know sometimes talking to a person that you feel like you really trust about this grief process or or actually going and getting professional help like for some others it's all really helpful but these community grieving um, processes are really showing to be um, one of the number one helpful things um, during the climate and ecological crisis. Mm. I was just talking with John Seed recently and he was mentioning how he's never seen such a growing interest in um, the Council of All Beings, for example, the deep ecology Mm. process. You mentioned the work that reconnects and, Mm. and warm data. So all of these things all together provide framework or as a pathways or how would you describe the relationship, I suppose, with warm data work that reconnects deep ecology and even permaculture and how permaculture fits into all of this thinking around regenerative futures of ways to, to move forward? Yeah, interesting you bring up um, John said, like I went to a deep ecology workshop um, that John Seed was holding in Sydney, I guess it was two, 218, um, to, to really familiarise myself with the work of Joanna Macy to help with my own grief process. Yeah, and we have run so many Council of All Beings within XR and um, with the lovely 
Frida, who, who was part of the Worker Reconnects community um, group. Frida and I ran quite a number of Council of All Beings together and it just seems like, you know, like if if you're dealing with so much grief and, and people are so touched and moved by loss of species, uh, it's nearly like before they can go to the inner work, like it's like nearly looking at the loss of species is is so there at the edge that the Council of All Beings and speaking from from the for the voice of a species is so powerful. And I think coming back to your question about all these different type of methodologies, like if we were talk if we are talking about the great unraveling, you know, we're seeing systems um changing on every single level. You know, we're seeing these regenerative economics like the work we're doing in um Regen Sydney with Donut Economics and which is also Brisbane and Melbourne and all over the place in Australia and all over the world we're seeing um, people move into different types of regenerative farming. We're seeing, I know within the psychotherapeutic field, we're challenging the roots of psychotherapy coming from quite a um, patriarchal lineage, you know. We're seeing the healing justice movement coming out of um, America with the the black, queer, femme, trans um, that have have traced back um, the origins actually of um, oppression on 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 healing practices and peoples. Um, so if you look up um, healing justice uh, lineages, it's an incredible book that's talking about this. And I think you know people have are waking up every day to like they're just being oppressed and and. You know, there's there's a very few people on, on the planet just extract extracting and capitalizing and um, taking out the resources of beauty and and for all the rest of us. And I think, quite frankly, people have had enough. And COVID was something that showed us a lot of real social um, issues. That people are now even coming out of COVID just have had enough and they're speaking up in their own ways. And, um, these methodologies are able to get to new dimensions of information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like this is where the, the arts come in. You know, if you think about the artists are able to access new dimensions of information and then if we work interdisciplinary, if we work in these kind of groups that are really interested in multiple perspective and the cross-pollinations, the artists come up, surface this information, and then we've got the analysts that think about it, and then we've got the communicators that share it, and then we've got all these different people that unpack it in different ways and share it back into the system. That's what we're kind of seeing these sort of feedback loops within planetary bounds um, of consciousness happening. And that's, you know, permaculture working within a system that's that's able to sustain the resources. Um, I think. Yeah, I'm seeing, you know, obviously you don't want to talk for everyone and, and I tend to sometimes recognise I'm in a bubble of people, you know, in, in these different communities that we're so hopeful and then you can step out of it and it's business as usual. Um, so I really want to sort of honour that that's the truth as well. But Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you a bit about that because I, I have... I, I worry about that a lot because within our bubbles it feels like there's really great advances in terms of understanding and awareness and a, a movement for change and then 
and you just do sort of kind of pop out for a bit and then you realise that actually things are just continuing, continuing, continuing. And I, f- I feel like that the, there is this sort of mycelial web that's moving underneath that and it's there is a changing, the unseen part is changing. Like visibly it's still kind of looking the same but there's something quite different going on but I also feel like there's a there's such a wave of uh, a way that people are responding to groups, say like XR. There was the you know and the and all the you know Greta's um, you know the marches that were happening. There was a great big wave, and then it just kind of went in. And then there was sort of more of the attacks that you'd hear about. You know the of of that being a, a wrong approach, and then it would wave again. Where mm. do you feel we are on this? this wave of awareness, what what response are you seeing at the moment coming in to XR and is XR sort of shifting and changing how it's putting itself out into the world to respond to this changing dynamic? Yeah, great question. And I have to say that XR is like a um, decentralised, non-hierarchical system. It's like it's huge and it happens all over the world and I guess when a wave's happening somewhere, it's sort of like this is the regenerative action cycle that I was talking about. Like it may be, you know, and, and it's also season dependent. Like you can see that there's actions going on in the war, you know, where it's sort of summer or warmer weather on the globe right now and people have been organising over winter and, and coming out and doing it and maybe in the context of the cooler, um, although there was actions in Melbourne recently, you know, like when people are sort of, coming together and thinking about and strategizing what's working, what's not working. And something that, you know, that all over XR there is a discussion is the protest laws. And like, you know, it's something that that um, you know, we've seen last year significantly impact um activists in their lives. And um and it's something that's being unpacked by law itself, you know, and there's a lot of call out at the moment for the for the legal system itself and those making decisions, you know, um, judges and jurors and, and I think the conversation that I'm hearing with XR is like calling out the moral obligation given the climate emergency, given the science. And, yeah, so that's what I would say there. And as far as, you know, like within Extinction Rebellion there's so many passionate people coming from so many places and spaces and, when you get passionate people coming together who have been oppressed often and coming together and haven't learnt um, deep anti-oppression values yet or haven't learned about each other but coming in under so much pressure to achieve a job, there's always going to be a mess um, at some part, you know, and, and that's also part of it. We can put in um, the regenerative cultures aspects as much as we want but people, you know, like we have to do the inner work to change. Um, so as far as like the, I mean, I can't speak for the whole system, but I, I, you know, in global support with the region, we we do have lots of dialogues with lots of the groups that are going through the things and that we hear about all the time. And, um, yeah, I would say waves are going up, waves are going down. People are strategising here, um, sharing back in what's working, um, people are trying new things, but there's still people pouring into the system. Like people are still pouring into XR. 
and finding their place in there um, because they are compelled to do something. Mm-hmm. And something that that I really appreciate about XR is that XR listens to the climate science. There's brilliant people on this planet who've been a climate scientist or, you know, thinking about these things for a long time and are giving us this information. You know, we base our... Um, we base decisions around law and medicine on good science and, you know, it's perplexing to me that we're not doing immediate policy on the client, on the climate science being presented to us. Mm-hmm. It's just not rational by any means. And so when you get all these multiple perspectives coming in and, and unpacking this science together and then strategizing the way that they can communicate that or protest that, that seems very reasonable to me. So if there was three things that you would like to see change, what kind of shifts do you think are the most important that we need to be paying attention to right now from your perspective? Because there are so many different perspectives, but where is the change? It's a really big question, um, Morag, but I guess if it was up to me for three wishes, firstly that we the work of people like Mary Graham or Anne Polina would be highlighted you know, and some of these incredible young First Nation activists that are speaking out, you know, Mary Graham's talk on relational ethos. If everyone would sit down and have a listen of what could be possible, we really need to know what's possible and then start thinking about how we can get there. Another thing is like doing the work of just deep compassion. I know we need to do the work of nonviolent direct action. We need to do the political work. You know, we need to do all this work. But deep, deep compassion for the state of the world we're in, which means, you know, often the state that we can be in. And then how to recognize when we're in a state that actually needs care and nurturing, giving the, the system something so that it can step forward in its greatest potential, regardless of what's happening, you know, whether we're in bring bushfires or floods or, you know, like if groups can work and communities can work, recognizing that burnout things like burnout, if someone shows up and they're burnt out, that's giving 100%. You know, if you've got to put someone on a on a, um, a mattress with a, a pillow and that, that, that that's giving at 100% contribution when you're burnt out but still being part of it. So I think compassion um, and compassion for, for our beautiful native Australian animals and wildlife and fauna flora, you know, I have a great, love of dingoes and if I could take down the dingo fence and show um, along with the other dingo advocates and permies like how biodiversity could do some healing with you know if we could take down such a structure like that and and look at the wisdom of how dingoes organize and and how they organize so well when they've got healthy social structures. Mm. Yeah I was going to ask you what have your You've lived with dingoes for a long time and what what lessons have you learned from your dingo life? What I've learned mainly from living in relationship with dingoes is that they, they it's like having a, um, a CT scan the way that they look at you. There's no way that, you know, they, they're deep in relationship with you. They're, it's, not, it's not didactic. It's very somatic and it's very deep love and generosity and playfulness but they're on to everything they're on to everything there's nowhere to hide the other 
I mean, that's with a human sort of dingo relationship. They call you out constantly. But if you look at dingoes in the way that they interact together, you know, like as I said before, if they have a, a healthy social structure where there's two alphas and the alpha and, the, and their territory, and they look at what resource is available on that territory to look after the pack, and often the alphas will be the ones that only have the puppies and they may allow other, you know, females to have it if the resource is great, but they know how to be in relationship with place mm-hmm. and they know how to keep the biodiversity at such a healthy level. Yeah, their social structure, um, when it's healthy, is the one of the best things that we could be doing for, you know, the continent of Australia, but the the many, many countries that are on this mm-hmm. on this large, large island of ours. You know, they're they're our apex predator. They're so wise and you know, um, that's what I, I know from dingoes, that, that healthy healthy social structures um, reaches potential of environment. Mm. Mm. And that's exactly what really Mary Graham was talking about. That's that relational ethos, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to, to talk with me today about all the work that you're doing, the insights that that brings, imagining those regenerative cultures. I mean, that's ongoing work, isn't it, wherever we are. And I think, too, there's something about valuing the local. And I wonder whether just as a final comment about that, because sometimes when the issue is so enormous, so global, Mm. the feeling that it's not enough just to do this connection with place. I wonder whether you have any reflections on that, you know, the scale of our connection, the scale of our action. When I have felt at my greatest depths of despair, something that's helped me the most is listening to how people are caring for their place, like picturing in my mind, you know, through that kind of systems thinking that there's people caring for where they are all over the globe. That's what I love about XR, you know, like, people genuinely caring about their place and if we did that all over the planet and, you know, like keep expanding that into regenerative capabilities and potential, that's something where I can actually tap into hope, you know, like that feels like authentic. We don't have control of what's going on over there and we we shouldn't have, you know, we should be just in relationship. How's it going over there? What can we share? Yeah, I, I really relate to that and I it's Probably one of the reasons I love permaculture so much as well, because of that connectivity of people everywhere around the world, having some kind of shared language but deeply localised way of relating and, and connecting to place and, and to community. And I was saying that was the last question, but I have one more. Yeah. <laughs> how, how in your in your mind, how do you see the relationship between XR and permaculture? Well, let's just talk about it. maybe a direct project that you're involved in. <laughs> Firstly, that we did meet through Warm Data and that's been a, just an amazing community with Nora Bateson. And, but also like our project with, you know, the, the XR Seedling Network where you've generous, generously um, supporting a couple of activists, one from Western Australia and one from Kenya, um, to work on this permaculture um, project. In relationship to XR, based on what country people are in, it's 
in some places, like particularly in Africa and in Eastern Europe and other places, it's not safe to protest. I mean, you you are murdered. So, you know, you have to go with your options. And permaculture, call that practivism, I think you and I have talked about that before, is such a powerful, powerful um, tool of activism. You know, because we're talking here about people's well-being, we're talking about medicine, we're talking about being in life systems and we're talking about beauty and we're talking about creation. And They're pretty powerful life-enhancing things to be for people to be involved in and once you get a taste of that, you just want more of it and it can spread and that's what we're seeing now with our beautiful Sam in Kenya who's who's got this land that, he's bringing back to life you know they've got a well and then and it's and it's through doing this permaculture and then sharing it with all the other African communities and then having this seedling network where people come in from all over the world and I know you know you've facilitated some of those conversations um a year or so ago and and we'll be doing some more and it's just picked that again that cross-cultural multiple perspective people sharing is what's working what's not working but also that like we said, knowing that someone's caretaking in that part of the planet gives you so much energy and so much like, wow, we're doing this together and that can lift the potential, you know, and that's kind of a regenerative capability and that's how powerful permaculture is in its connection to Extinction Rebellion and to, you know, communities across the, the globe. Oh, thank you, Christy, for joining me today and um, if, is there anywhere people can find out more anything that, you've written or maybe the regen cultures booklet where would we where would we send people to for that to find it yeah um well like i said the the regen cultures booklet was done during the fire so we're very proud of the typos <laughs> um <laughs> but it's on ozrebellion.earth you can find it on under there um sally gillespie and carol Ryder, myself from psychology for safe climate just wrote a paper in the australian counseling association journal on becoming a climate-aware practitioner. Otherwise, I'd really encourage um, people to come along to like a climate cafe either within um, Extinction Rebellion Global Support. You can find that on the events page or within Psychology for a Safe Climate. It's really great to come into those um, climate cafes that I facilitate those with other um, practitioners and you get to hear like incredible work people are doing all over Australia and global, but they're really a place to come in and talk to you about your feelings around what's happening. Um, there's not the pressure to take an action or to, you know, like to have to do something there and then. It's at that time for deep reflection and time for just listening in and, and the feedback is people just feel less isolated when yeah. when they're able to have these conversations and, and sometimes have to listen to perspectives that they don't share. Thank you so much for that. That's wonderful. I guess I also want to thank you, Morag. Like you work so tirelessly in in permaculture and with young people and with with so many um, groups that don't have access, financial means or resources to do the permaculture. And you're so generous in that way. And um, it's always been a pleasure for me to have our conversations over the years and, and your deep love of living systems and all the nerdy stuff we love talking about. But really, also the <laughs> The life things like talking about our daughters and our sons and, you know, the places that we love. So it's, I'm just so grateful to have met you and for the work you're doing as well. Mm. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Sense Making the Changing World. Check out the show notes below to find a link to Christy's work and also check the notes for where to find details of our permaculture courses, our YouTube, blog, free masterclasses and film clubs and make sure you're signed up to hear our news and updates. And come and join us at the Permaculture Education Institute to learn practical skills for designing and teaching permaculture and making a good livelihood while living a permaculture-inspired, one-planet way of life. Until next time, take care. I hope to see you soon.